Hello, everyone. Welcome to the discussion portion of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gostola, and I'm joined by Rania Kalak. Hey, Rania. Hi, Kevin. And uh, we're so glad to be here. Uh, and thanks. Last week, uh, our previous episode with Mark Ames was very successful, and that's all thanks to you. Uh, we got a number of uh, donations, uh, more, more people subscribing to us and supporting our show. Yes, thank uh, you, and keep yeah. doing that, you guys. Really, even you know the smallest amount helps. Um, we really love making it. And uh, last week's, I think, seriously, last week's uh, interview with Mark was probably one of my favorites. And it couldn't have been better timing because of the Russia stuff. And also, Mark is like one of a handful of people who actually knows Russia. <laughs> so it was a great. Inter- I actually listened to the interview and I, like myself just because there was so much he said that I didn't really get to digest. Um, and so, yeah, I recommend if you didn't listen to it, go back and check it out because excellent interview. I've seen multiple people share it, and I think it's been very helpful for people in the past week because of just what's been going on. And, it, it you know, it's a, our episode is a kind of sanity break for people, you know, this, like, opportunity to hear something that makes sense uh, amidst all this hysteria that's going on. Um, with people continually like making conclusions about stuff that I just don't think as you, if you listen to Mark, we can, we're very open about, we don't think you can make those conclusions about what, uh, is being said about Russian interference and and other stuff. He also just offers this like entire historical background, um, that I don't think people were generally aware of. And it helps people understand not just the relationship between the U S and Russia, but also people just have so, so little knowledge about Russia like I mean, I'm you know same here. Me too. I don't I don't know very much about Russia. I've never been there, um, and there aren't very many people who will call themselves experts who know much about Russia. So I think it was also just like a learning opportunity um, to understand, you know, what we've done to that country. It really puts into context though, because uh, the one thing I will say on uh, on the, on this story, which has really blown up this past week, is you've got Dick Cheney. Who says it was an act of war? Yeah. What Russia did, and now you've Incredible got Donna dude. Brazil, who is celebrating Dick Cheney for calling it an act of war. Oh my god, I didn't even know that. Did I, I totally missed that. Are you serious? Yes. And so uh, this is this is the bipartisanship, but this is wow. how. Um, and I think this is what Mark was talking about when he said it's not just a Democrats thing; it's entrenched, and that's really why um, it's it's just so astounding to watch unfold. Uh, but yeah, I mean, again, the Podesta emails, should we not know what was in them? Like, are we better off because we know that information in the emails? I don't really think it matters how they came to be. You know, this is something that people like Donna Brazil still cannot admit, that there is something of value, truthful. I mean, do, do we need to know that Donna is passing on questions to the Hillary Clinton campaign? Yeah, it sounds like a personal thing to me. <laughs> I mean, I would be pissed off. Look, look, if I got caught doing what she got caught doing, I would be pissed off and I would join in any effort to to divert attention away from what I did. (laughs) Anyways, uh, we wanted to read, as we do at the top of our show, uh, some of the comments we have received from people who are supporters of the show. And so this one actually goes back around you to... when we interviewed Patrick Coburn, we were talking about, uh, during our discussion, uh, we mentioned some things about uh, raising money. We were talking about the budget. Oh. And so this comes from Jeremy, who just wanted to make a, a general point, which I think is valid. We can have single-payer health care, fund green energy, 
tuition-free public college, full employment, and more, all without necessarily raising the money from taxes. Our government no longer works for the people. In reality, our spending is only constrained to the amount of goods, services, and resources we have. Of course, ethics and sustainability factor into the equation, but we can do all the things that progressives strive for right now. We just have to tell Congress to spend on the 99% instead of the wealthy and the corporations. Oh, yeah, he's absolutely Thank right. You, Jeremy. I agree with that. I still want to tax the fuck out of people who have hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. Um, I think you were talking about Bill Gates. I think he's referring to like the part. We also talked about Bill Gates in that episode too. Yeah, that, that, that might be what he was. But no, I totally, he's absolutely right. I totally agree. But I also think that we can have even more. Like I, yeah, I'm with you, dude. I just also think that. And then yeah. Tom had one quibble, which I'm going to allow him to air. And he said, I really enjoy listening to you guys. However, on the climate change issue, the argument that Trump and his cronies are pursuing their policies because they are old, have a lot of money, and will die relatively soon is weak. That would imply that they believe in climate change on some level. In fact, those people have children and grandchildren who presumably they love. That is even scarier, in my honest opinion, since it shows that they really don't believe the science. I think a lot of them, I think there's there's some of them who don't believe in the science. But I think also with people like that, and of course I can't, um, you know, I haven't psychologically examined them myself, but I, I, I think there's a belief among really wealthy people that they can, that their kids are going to be fine because they'll just like build some gated, you know, so community, I'm being serious. Like they'll just go build some gated community. That's what they do. These really, really ultra wealthy people, like they, they think that they'll survive whatever happens and they probably will (laughs) and their kids probably will because they have all these resources to basically avoid the worst aspects of what, what climate change will be like. So I also think that that plays into it as well. I think there are those who actually believe it. They just have this disgusting view of the world where they don't care what happens to people who aren't like them. And then um, here's one that's fun. Aaron said Ames is one of the best working journalists. He also looks a whole lot like Mel Gibson. <laughs> I could totally see that. Whoa, I never thought about that, but yeah. Well, we should and- tell Mark that. And Andrew said, I'm aware that this happened a while back, but I have to say it gave me great joy to see Rania Kalik and Max Blumenthal completely shred neocon, quote unquote, journalist Eli Lake on Twitter. I saw that comment and I love that it was just like random as hell. And thank you. I, that, I appreciate the encouragement. And because it made you happy, I will do my best to make sure that happens again and again and again. We'll, we'll seek out opportunities to yeah. go after. <laughs> but so far, I think... Lately, he hasn't really been that interesting, or it's 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 he a new on, Trump paradigm. It's I saw like, him I on the TV the other day, and I don't know what he was talking about because, like, when he talks, I don't hear anything. But <laughs> but I saw his face, and I was just like, God, this guy. He didn't look well. I'll I'll be honest. He did not look well. He looked like he hadn't slept in a while. Um, he's probably like, No, I don't know. Like, why aren't they doing war on Iran right now? I don't I don't know what his problem was. But, uh, yeah. Well, he might I, get his proxy war in Yemen. So Well, he's, he, like, suddenly cares about refugees. Like, I feel like I looked at, like, his timeline a couple weeks ago or something because he was trying to talk trash to me. And, uh, yeah, it was just all, like, we have to care about refugees. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, when did Eli become a person with a heart? I'm like, oh, that's right. He just doesn't like Trump. <laughs> that's all. Well, that's a story idea. Someone could document the evolution of some of these journalists who were just atrocious under Obama and have yeah. now have now 
discovered progressivism or, or like dabbling in liberal values. Well, like, I just love Eli Lake being like, we can't hurt Salafi jihadists. Like, after that was his shtick for years, was we have to bomb them all. Like, bomb all of them. It's like, wow, dude. But yeah, that, that would be a fun article. I feel like Gawker uh, would do that, but not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that's, uh, again, so thanks, everyone. We really appreciate your support. Yes. And uh, moving on, uh, let's talk. Uh, we don't always want to talk uh, every episode about you, but uh, let's talk <laughs> about you. Uh, what is that supposed to mean, Kevin? I'm just joking. No, but you're – so you've got an event coming up on uh, April. In April, it's a what, uh, 11th? Yes, April 11th in Portland at the um, at Oregon State University. Yes, with and... Abby Martin and Minar uh, and, and Minar from uh, Mint Press, uh, who's awesome. And yeah, it's, we're going to be speaking on um, Syria, Yemen, Palestine, uh, and the student group that invited us is this like Palestine group on campus. It's not an SJP, but it's the Palestine Solidarity Group on campus, and they love us all and knew it was going to be controversial when they invited us. But, um, yeah, they've, you wrote about it, Kevin, so you can give a rundown if you'd like. Well, that's not the description I read. Somebody said you're going to be whitewashing Assad's crimes well... and uh, co-opting narratives of resistance to erase people, uh, Syrian people specifically. That was the original title, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was problematic and people complained, so we changed it. Okay. No, I mean... No, but, like, seriously, I wrote, I wrote about this because, again... I think it caught my attention, and I thought, based on what happened, which we talked about in this show, with you at the University of North Carolina, it seemed like there was a potential for that to happen again. And also, because you're speaking not alone, but you're also speaking with Manar Muhawesh, who is the editor of Mint Press News and has had similar difficulties before. I'm not sure that she was ever disinvited from anywhere, maybe a couple places, but uh, based on her uh, what, what she shared with me, her history is slightly different. It seems more of like she's been isolated. Yeah, she – so Minar – I mean for everything that's happened to me and it's been really shitty, I've had a lot of support from people like you, Kevin, um, and, and others, you know, or other friends and colleagues have been very, very supportive. You know, there was that letter against blacklisting that Noam Chomsky signed. I will literally find any excuse to mention the fact that Noam Chomsky signed a letter um, against blacklisting me. <laughs> so yeah, I love mentioning that. Um, but with with Minar, she was smeared in a really different way. So she, back in uh, 2013, when the U.S. was um, talking about bombing Syria because they said that the Syrian government uh, had crossed the red line with chemical weapons, with like alleged chemical weapons attacks. Uh, Minar was very, she was much, you know, she's very vocal. She has this really, you know, she has this online outlet, Mint Press. Um, and she, you know, had published a lot of articles, you know, questioning what had actually happened, um, which, by the way, isn't all that different than what Seymour Hersh ultimately published. And he's been, like, chased out of um, writing for certain outlets because of what he published. But anyways, it's besides the point. So BuzzFeed wrote, at the time, wrote this insane hit piece on Minar trying to basically portray her as, like, an Iranian agent. Like, it, literally an agent of Iran, because her, they, they assumed she was Shia, first of all, and she's not. Um, but her, like, I guess, like, her, her husband's father had studied in Iran uh, at some point. It's a crazy article. They're basically like, yeah, she's basically an Iranian agent because her, hus- her, her father-in-law studied in, at, like, an Iranian university. 
And that, that was the connection they made. Um, and people bought it. Like, people stopped talking to her. People, like, they really, they portrayed her in such a negative light and, like, as, like, this crazy person who loved Syria, like, who loved the Syrian government, which wasn't even remotely true, that, um, yeah, she was, like, not, not, she was disinvited from a couple of things, but she stopped being invited to things. And then when she was, people refused to participate with her, like other Arabs and Muslims. Um, so, yeah, what Minar went through, I think, was a lot more isolating than what I've gone through because at least I've had, as hard as it's been, I've had people supporting me. Minar was really kind of on her own, and that was, like, back in 2013. Um, so she's probably, she's one of the strongest people, honestly, uh, that it's I know. also really early in, the, in, yeah. this, in this effort, the, the targeting of you, which I guess we could say started when you were in Syria and, and there were claims made about you that were completely false. But... Well, start a few months before. I mean, the reason it started with me is because, you know, I wasn't really that vocal on the issue of Syria unless it was like in like headline news. Um, and unless we were about to unless we were bombing it. So like if we when we were bombing, you know, when we tried to bomb in 2013, I was against that. When we were going to bomb ISIS, I was, you know, I was like, stop. Like the U.S. needs to get the hell out. Um, but otherwise, I you know was really focused on Palestine. But then, like I said before, I thought Hillary Clinton was going to be president. She was promising to do a no-fly zone. So after she won the primary is when I started becoming more vocal on the Syria issue because I was scared there was going to be a no-fly zone. And that's when people started coming after me hard. But yeah, the crazy craziest shit happened when I actually went to Syria. But for Minar, I think Minar was also an example in a way. Like she, like the way that she was smeared and tarred was like a message to everybody else in a way. Like, this is what will happen to you. If- so one quick story I want to say about Minar is uh, there's this person named Terry Burke who's from this Committee in Solidarity with the People of Syria in uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Mm-hmm. And she's just like really – or she's just this like very fanatical type person who uh, followed Minar everywhere to a bunch of events. And gave like a tip, uh, like uh, tried to be a source for a story that this local reporter at uh, Minnesota Post did, this local newspaper. Mm-hmm. And I, I just have to say, I exchanged emails with this guy, Brian Lambert, this reporter, and it's just completely hilarious. Like these people who get self-inflated and think they're going to expose people like you or Minar. And I think that they've they've finally found like an Iranian agent or they finally (laughs) found like uh, like an Assadist plant inside of the United States. I mean, he went and did this story where like he went around looking for the MIT Press News office and couldn't find it (laughs) and then like made it a blog post where it was this like investigative gumshoe I'm watchdog reporter looking for MIT Press News's office why can't I find the brick and mortar office anymore and it come to find out and he still won't admit that it's this innocent come to find out that just like every other media organization they could no longer afford having office space and decided to just have a virtual office yeah, no, it's 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 nuts uh, what Minar has had to deal with, and it's these crazy. It's always these crazy fanatical. I'm very very sorry if if this offends anybody, but the people who are the most fanatical on this are these like these like older crazy white people. <laughs> They're retired. They have a lot of time. Yeah, no, seriously, like there's these people on the internet, uh, like. They, it's just the same names over and over again, and they're just, like, always, like, they're just insane. And they're like, Rania supports genocide. They're like, Rania loves dictators. Rania loves civilians dying. Like, Rania eats babies. I mean, it's 
they're just so crazy and unhinged and like I just feel like they're like I'm like yeah it makes sense they'd be retired they have nothing else to do but yeah that's like who was following Minar around Uh, so uh I think that there's there are some serious points to be made about why uh this matters so you know, it's very, very early. The students, the, the big point is that the students have said that this event will not be canceled. They've taken a stand and they've said, you know, in, in no way are we willing to disinvite either you or Menar. Yeah, which is what I was really proud of. Like, I, not only that, they were like, look, if you guys have a problem, then you can come to the event and you can ask questions during the Q&A. We, we support engaging and discussing these things, not, you know not shutting down debate. And I was really impressed by that um, and proud of them because, you know, that's not that often that you get to see that, that sort of like, cause students, you know, they don't have that much power and they are kind of easily pressured. Um, and especially on this issue, like no one wants to touch it. And these students are just really brave because they are getting a lot of backlash. Um, but I really like their take on it. They're like, look, it's, you need to come and talk about it. Like come and raise your issues. And you can also, it's going to be live stream. So you can ask questions over the live stream. Um, and I, what I think is really fascinating too, is like, so it's, you know, Abby Martin and then me and Minar and me and Minar are both Arab women. Um, and the, the anger is directed at me and Minar and they basically just want to cancel the two Arab women. Like, it's like, it's just so bizarre. It's, we're talking about Yemen, Syria and Palestine. And they're like, you don't speak for us, cancel them. And I'm just like, wow, you want to cancel the two Arab women. That's, that says a lot. Like it's, they're just, they're, I think that at this point, one, one thing I started to realize is one of the reasons that these people are so are so fanatical about their desire to like make sure that me, people like Minar and I do not have platforms is because they're scared what we say might actually resonate with people. They're like really scared of that. If, if they otherwise they would be okay if, they, if if our views were that monstrous and horrifying, then we wouldn't be difficult to debate. You know, we, who cares? Let them, let them talk in public because what they're saying is crazy. Like if Rania really supports genocide, then God, let her, let her say so, let her say so openly in public. So people know, and like, if people heard that, then they wouldn't like her, but instead it's shut her down. And it is because, you know, especially it's really powerful coming from two Arab women, one of, you know, two different background, like about two different religious backgrounds as well. Um, that makes a huge difference in in the kinds of like a, you know place that both of us are coming from, and so yeah, people just want to make sure nobody hears it and nobody sees it, nobody reads it, nobody can really hear what we have to say or, or any of our analysis. So I want to veer into uh, an area here related to this where it's going to be controversial. People are probably not going to like what I have to say, or maybe I'll be surprised and more people agree with me. But I. I believe that one of the reasons why I was driven to write about this and and then go a step further and, and make a comment about cancels, cancellations and disinvitations of speakers in general uh, is because, you know, this has gone way too far. I think, like, people on campuses really have gone overboard and are also having the effect of you know, I, I suppose in your case, it's okay. I don't have a problem with people uh, making you more uh, well-known and giving you more notoriety as a result of their these efforts to go after you. 
which um, I think like is a fair thing to say that there's probably people who have now become introduced to your work because there are people trying to silence you. Yeah. So thank you to the assholes for that. <laughs> However, I don't really want that to happen with people like, uh, you know, you know, these, these, these conservative reactionary people who are being hosted on cameras, people like Ben Shapiro or, or, you know, Maybe, um, you know, any of these people who are from, like, the Breitbart News family or, like, anybody, and, and they're going to want to come speak on campuses, and it seems like the only way that groups that are sympathetic to the same issues that we are sympathetic to, the only way they know how to handle these people is to just put their foot down and say, you're not coming on our campus to speak. Yeah, that's, like, and I, I mean, yeah, and, no, exactly. To me, I don't think that there that this is a very good thing to be doing to to no platform these people, and I I I really think that I'm at a point where I'm able to defend this. If somebody were to say that that's a bad choice, I wasn't. You know, two or three months ago, I would have been completely on board, but I've. I've come around. I think a part of it has to do with the way things are, the, the the way the order is set up right now with Donald Trump being president. And I just think we have to be more strategic and smart with the way in which we go after these speakers because they really do get a victory. If they get if they get thrown off these campuses, then they look like they're heroes of free speech. No, exactly. And, and I mean, I'll give an example. Like I know there's one campus um, where the student group. And there, there was a student group, like a Republican student group or something that invited Milo and nobody heard about it because basically like the student government, um, a lot of the kids in the student government, instead of like blowing it up into this bigger thing, they basically just made it, they like threw all these bureaucratic obstacles in the way of him coming to speak there. Um, first of all, he had, he like asks for this insane speaking fee. Um, that requires all this paperwork that the students who invited him didn't really do right. And so they basically... Like, it was very quietly, um, not canceled, but they basically made it impossible for him to come speak. Uh, and, I mean, I think, like, with Milo, it's a different story, too, because and it was so quiet that nobody heard about it. And so I think that that's really strategic and effective. And so with people like Milo, and let me be clear, I mean, Milo, he's crazy, but it's not about necessarily shutting down what he says because he's got, like, a thousand platforms. It's about the fact that when he goes places, he actually wants to hurt people. yeah. And that's the big problem with him. Like when he was at, and that should have been what the UC Berkeley thing was about. Um, when he wanted to go to UC Berkeley, he was saying that he was going to come out undocumented students and trans, yes. and like trans students. Like that, that is, you are trying to actually, you know, dox people basically and put them in harm's way. That's unacceptable. And that's not about free speech. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. So in December 2016 at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, he accused a transgender student of um, basically the way he put it was a non-binary trans woman forced his way into the women's locker rooms this year and was going after this person for using um, using Title Nine to make sure that her rights were upheld on the college campus. So that, and uh, a photo was put up at this event. Um, in order to bring attention to this person. And there was a lot of, you know, harm. There were crude attacks that were brought against this person uh, for doing nothing, really, you know. And also just, like, the complete vicious harassment and the way that he rallied people to go after Leslie Jones 
this cast member of Saturday Night Live. Um, I think, you know, as much as that person's a celebrity and can defend themselves, I just think that that was completely grotesque. Um, and also just, you know, what well, it was he, over well, was he also like, he was, like, he released like naked photos of her. Is that what he did? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think like those, those people, like part of, part of that happening came, that was collateral damage. It was from this, this effort to go after her. And, uh, and so to me, I think the standard has to be that if you've got somebody who you're giving a platform who commits assaults on others' dignity and, and those people, you know, you know, have, to bear the brunt of those risks, then you really as an institution shouldn't be having somebody come to campus who engages in that kind of behavior. Right. Yeah. Now, by, but now, now by, on the other hand, I really don't think that I, I personally believe, and I know that there are a lot of people in my generation who think differently, but I believe that no laws or norms really should be there for the express purpose of making sure that people do not get offended. Like, right. Yeah. That's that's a that. really slippery. Not only is it a slippery slope, but you can't tailor a space towards every individual person's feelings about something. And I mean that in particular about when you're talking about a political issue. Yeah. Like if you're talking about, just take something where you know you you have a lot of experience with. Like if we're just talking about how people feel viscerally when they hear about Israeli apartheid. And if we're going to make sure that everyone feels good when you talk about what happens when mm -hmm. Israeli security forces torture and maim or do whatever else they are documented doing to Palestinians, you, know, you can't keep up with that. I can't make sure that everybody feels good, nor are you supposed to feel good about hearing about what's going on. You should feel uncomfortable. Yeah, I know exactly. Um, I agree. And that's the thing. It's like college especially college campuses, should be a space where you have to engage with uncomfortable arguments that you might not like. Even arguments that we don't agree with. You need to engage with them. Because shutting them down completely is not an effective way to convince people that you're right and the other person's wrong. So you have to be able to engage with them. Like, um, I mean, I actually think it, that there was, I think there was a debate that was supposed to be had with uh, Charles Murray, right? Yeah. Um, and it was like on race and stuff and his views are disgusting, but it wasn't like he was just coming to talk and spew hate. It was a debate. I actually think that that's, that's important. I want to see people debate and shoot down arguments that are accepted by an unfortunately large number of people in our society. Like, I think that that's like important. That's arguing your side, seeing other people effectively argue your side, challenging the other side. It makes you better at advocating for the position that you have. It really, really does. And I, I feel like that needs to happen more, not less, um, even if it's pe with people that are, like, disgusting and we disagree with. And I also think that, you know, what it comes down to is this as well, is that we can sit here and talk about banning people who have bad views. But at the end of the day, people on the left don't have power. Like, we just don't. We think we do sometimes, but we don't. Even on college campuses, some student groups think they have power, and they really don't, not the way they think. At the end of the day, these things will ultimately, I think, be used against people like us more than anybody else. I mean, people on the left more than anybody else. And we should know that from the Palestine issue, because that's who has traditionally been um, affected the most by shutting down free speech on campuses is when it comes to the issue of Palestine for several, like, decades now. Um, and so to see that be turned around and used against people like me 
and others on like other issues is is really sad and i think that people really need to examine like the way that this shit can blow back and well, down the line and there's one more thing i want to say before we move on to uh you know i guess the topic we were going to end on here uh is that Let's consider how administrators of these universities or colleges are going to respond to this tension. At some point, they have to find a way to manage uh, this risk of these groups challenging speakers who come on and are unpopular. I mean, it's in the interest of these people to try and prevent these sort of things from happening because, you know, they want people to be able to invite outside speakers to speak on campuses, it can be good for the college to be able to have those people come to the community. So what are they going to do? Well, they're going to maybe start insisting that only uncontroversial speakers come. Like, we're just going to invite maybe people who like are, are moderates or are just like down the middle. Like they don't offend people or maybe they're so well known or maybe they're just like corporate. Maybe they just come from like businesses or corporations and they don't really have any defined political beliefs or involvement uh, in any issues. And they can just speak in ways that, you know, don't really move people. Or, you know, you have situations where they might say, look, you can have this event, but you have to have a speaker who opposes you be part of that event. Yeah, which could Uh, also totally derail your event. (laughs) Yeah, and, like, people aren't going to want to appear with someone who they think is the enemy. I mean, like, imagine, in your case, if... If I get SJP in it, you're like, Oscar Terji's going to come and defeat you. (laughs) No, like, what if it was like, or, or like, what what really happened? What if it had been like, okay, Rania, you can speak, but you have to participate in this event with Steven Zunas, who is (laughs) going to come speak at this event and and accuse you of saying, and yeah, Yeah. and accuse you of like, just like spend the whole time keeping, making you have to tell everybody, no, I don't support genocide. That's literally what would happen if I had to, if I had to do an event with Steven, I wouldn't be able to talk about any thing of substance because it would just be him saying you support genocide and i would say no i don't yeah <laughs> that would be the whole I'll just, thing i'll just say the last final point is just to refer you you know if um i wrote this piece it was called uh when small groups of people shut down controversial speakers on campuses and i only mentioned the title just in case you want to find uh something that was put out that i think might be interesting and provoke some thought and I really want to hear, you know, if you have any reactions to what was agreed upon here. But this guy who's a pretty, you know, I, I think we would probably think he was a nutso conservative. But that's besides the point. This guy, Robert P. George. And then Cornell West, they came together and they wrote this thing because they were upset about what happened to Charles Murray at Millbury College oh. when he was shut down. And also there was a professor with him that was injured by protesters. Wow. And um, they put together this statement defending um freedom of expression on campuses and, um, you know, opposing this idea that you would cancel people's uh, speeches or try to, like, run them off campus when they have events. Um, and they weren't defending Charles Murray. They were defending, like, the concept of being able to have people come in and be part of a community for, you know, this this temporary moment where you get to come in and be a part of this space and then everyone gets to come in and have exchanges of ideas and challenge each other and uh, try to engage in truth seeking. And if you don't think the person's correct, then you can, you can point out where they're flawed and force them to defend their views. And, you know, you can put people on, um, on the spot and it's, I think it's a part of like democracy to be able to go back and forth and, and have somebody on campus who you disagree with. And if you just have people 
who come on your campus, as they would say, if you just have people come on your campus that you agree with, then you're just making your campus a haven for dogmatism or groupthink. Yeah, and also you're never, yeah, exactly. And so you're never going to be able to like make better arguments or learn to make better arguments because you're never have you're never going to have been challenged to. Because I mean, because you're going to leave these universities or colleges and go out into the world, and when you go out into the world, these these some of these ideas that you hate, that you uh, oppose, and that you want a safe space from, are dominant mainstream ideas. Yeah, cases, and you can't just say these are wrong, these hurt people, and throw up your hands. You have to like we have to grapple with them and struggle. I mean, I think this part of like you know liberation movements is finding a way to like grapple with these and you might as well be exposed to them and then figure out how to like demolish them. Exactly. No, I I agree with you. And obviously like, obviously there's some nuance to be had there because, you know, like with the Milo stuff, it can be tricky. Right. But, and also I think like with some of the Israel Palestine stuff, it can be somewhat tricky because people get confused and they're like, but you don't want Netanyahu to come speak. And I'm like, well, that's like, you know, there's like a, a movement to to basically like oppose and, and boycott, divest from and sanction apartheid. And so that's what that's like all about. It's about but, bringing attention to that. But Milo is this very rare beast. I yeah. Think. Yeah. And, like Charles Murray isn't going to Middlebury College and standing up at a podium reading a list of black <laughs> people, low income black people on welfare and being like, let's get these people. Yep. Let's get these people off welfare. No. Yeah, um, no. And that's like, I mean, basically with Milo, it's incitement. That's the problem with Milo. Yeah. It's incitement. And that is a different, like, you're right. He's a different creature, like completely. Um, uh, but yeah. I don't know if you want to, we, we wanted to just spend a few minutes uh, before we close uh, just uh, uh, talking about the expansion of war in Somalia. We've seen radical expansions in, in Yemen. Um, we've talked about these stories before in the past, but I just, I think it was important to update people before we ended. Yeah, it seems as though, according to all the news articles, and also if you just look at the evidence of the civilian deaths on the ground, uh, the Trump administration has eased whatever restrictions existed. He's he's eased them uh, on rules of engagement. So it's basically easier to target what you want if you're a general without having to get approval. Um, And that's a really creepy development. (laughs) Um, And, you know, if you look at what's happening in Syria right now, I mean, and there's been hundreds and hundreds of civilian deaths from the U.S. And they're just kind of like shrugging their shoulders and like, oh, well, Um, and yeah, with Somalia, they're saying Al-Shabaab, which I don't even think this is accurate, presents a threat to the U.S. I don't Has Al-Shabaab ever attacked the U.S.? They're a bad group. They're fucked up bad group. But have they attacked the U.S. before? I, I know of no instance when we've been attacked by al-Shabaab. Um, I know that, like, one of the things that our country has monitored is the way in which uh, Somali refugees or Somali migrants have moved in and out. And there's been tracking of people from, like, Minnesota areas, mm-hmm. particularly to, uh, you know, traveling back to Somalia. Um, there's been some rare, very, like, controversial cases where, like, people have sent money back home. And then they've claimed to track the money uh, being uh, like ending up in the hands of al-Shabaab. But some of those cases are like political prosecutions, to be quite honest. And the but but nobody, no, nobody has been attacked by al-Shabaab. Well, meanwhile, Somalia is dealing with like a famine right now, yeah. I believe. And so is Yemen. Um, yeah, Yemen. Yemen's the man. I mean, I think Somalia's famine is mostly a result of climate change issues and drought issues. Although Somalia is a country that the U.S. completely fucked up in the 90s. 
and basically like collapsed. And that's why it's still messed up till now. And, you know, in short and simplistic way to put it, but, um, but yeah, in Yemen, it's a totally man-made famine, but in both cases, regardless, these populations are being, are starving for diff- for various reasons. Um, and the U S response to that is to increase the, um, attacks on these populations, and that goes with Somalia, but Yemen as well. Uh, the basically the Trump administration is doubling down, um, or tripling down, or whatever in Yemen, and they're easing restrictions on weapon sales to the Gulf countries who are bombing Yemen, um, like Bahrain as well. Basically, the the Trump administration it, it sees everything in the prism of Iran, except for I don't know the Somalia thing is confusing. Um, that I think is more about like weapon sales and just like colonizing Africa more. Um, but with these other places in the Middle East, it's everything's being viewed through the lens of, of, you know, a war with Iran and a proxy war with Iran. And so they're beefing up their, they're basically sending more weapons than before than Obama did, which Obama broke records to these, what they call Sunni Arab states, like, um, you know, which the Gulf monarchies basically that sit on top of oil. And that is why Yemen is going to be further destroyed, and that is why everything else is going to be further destroyed. So I'm sorry to end, to, to well, make so that, keeping really with sad. the keeping with a the theme that we've consistently returned to on this show, uh, you've talked about how the U.S. is responsible for helping to fuel the rise of uh, Al Qaeda type groups, mm-hmm. and it would probably come as no shock to you, Rania that al-Shabaab is what it is today because of the United States. Shocking. You don't say. And <laughs> and so um, this is from Jeremy Scahill's book, Dirty Wars. But basically in it, he wrote about how uh, al-Shabaab and uh, al-Qaeda allies were, um, were more powerful uh, because the CIA-backed Somali warlords who were defeated by the Islamic Courts Union in the mid-2000s. And then there was blowback. And basically, uh, the civilian tolls the wars were taking in Iraq and Afghanistan and the abuses at Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo gave credence to the perception that the United States was waging a war against Islam. While the United States backed its own warlords in Mogadishu, Washington's post-9-11 actions led to the formation of a coalition of former warlords, warlords and religious movements that would challenge the rule of the U.S. proxies in Somalia. And then what happened is— But were the warlords not religious? Uh, I don't know why Jeremy makes the distinction. I'm sure that they were some, like, who had, you know, also... that sounds like a really simplistic narrative to me, actually. Um, but anyways, go ahead. And I think it probably is oversimplified because, like, it's, uh, you know, it wasn't... His, his book was more generally about, like, a very large, wide-ranging concept of transforming the world into a battlefield. It wasn't just about Somalia. So I think that, like, there are parts of his book where it was more generalized because, you know, it's not just focused on Somalia. It's like he's doing a a cursory history of, you know, like, he's talking about what happened in 2000. It's, like, very important context, and it's boiled down to just a paragraph. Well, I think that, well, the most important context here is, you know, the U.S. collapsed the Somalian state back in the 90s, and it was all part of the Cold War. Um, No one, like, it's like, it, it was all Cold War issues like with the u.s trying to use proxies in this way and that and because as a result i mean somalia wasn't always a fucked up place like that didn't no, have absolutely. a state and, that, and and since it hasn't had a state that is what has that's why you have warlords in the first place well, we like, made it worse because we've aligned with ethiopia yes and those are christians and they're going in there and they're fighting guess islamic jihadists so you've got people 
You have a holy war. Yeah, no, no, you do have a holy war. But I also want to emphasize, like, um, I just want to emphasize that one of the, the ways that these groups gain prominence also is in, in power vacuums and, um, and like, and, like, guess like like not like stateless zones basically yeah i mean like whether you're talking about afghanistan which basically the u.s put them in power there anyways um or somalia or you know libya i mean that is where in or iraq i mean this is like a pattern um and in some cases the u.s was actually the one that was that was empowering the islamists not always but in a lot of cases and so the point is is that you know it's really sad i mean somalia obviously has been prone to drought like because of where it's located um, and, and famine and has, has been like an ongoing trend over the, you know, because of its climate and stuff. But that said, I mean, it would not be like this if, if they actually had a functioning central government and they don't because of America. So it's really messed up. I mean, and now like we respond to that by just bombing. I mean, it's just, it's like a place where people are just sacri It's like a sacrifice zone or something. These places are just like sacrifice zones where people's lives don't matter. It's so disgusting. I mean, literally, like, we kill, like, the U.S. I shouldn't say we because I'm not doing it. But our government, like, our government bombs these places and just takes out, like, 100 people at a time sometimes. And it barely registers as, as anything. And it's just so disgusting that people's lives matter so little. Um, after basically like U.S. policies and others' policies infested their countries with psychopaths, like it's so messed up. Well, pre Donald Trump, there really was among the press no interest in Somalia, Barack Obama, and mm -hmm. how those policies were fueling crimes against humanity or you know whatever is going on in these countries. I mean, honestly, like all journalists were ignoring. But like 80, 75 percent of people working don't cover this on a daily, weekly basis or pay attention like you and I do. Yeah, no, I suddenly see all of these people and it's not a bad thing, but they're just like, Trump killed civilians. And I'm like, thank I'm really glad you care. Like, wow, yeah. that's really and, awesome. And again, another example, uh, because I would, again, wager that if Hillary Clinton was president, there would not be outrage about what was happening in these countries because we would think. She's got it under control. She's an even-handed woman, and she knows what she's doing. Yeah, and it's not that doesn't mean that we like like we're happy that Trump's president and the one doing it. It's just a matter of like, I really wish we could get people to be a little bit more consistent and reflect on that, because these people. I mean, to me, just these people become like the the people who are dead that whose names nobody knows. The hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people in many cases whose names are never known. They just become sort of political fodder. Um, I also and, think there's more con continuity than people would be willing to yes. admit. Like Hillary may have, like a Democrat. Let's 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 remove Hillary. I don't want to do personality. A Democrat would escalate wars with a Saudi-backed coalition if they thought doing so would decisively end a conflict. Well, no. I mean, if they they doesn't. It's actually the end of the conflict isn't even the goal <laughs> in a lot of these cases. And in that case. That's another issue, because when we cover these things, there is never a conversation where we force people to say, what are you trying to accomplish? It's always like, look, this is about security. Let it play itself out. It could take some long time. Yeah. And everybody's like, OK, enough said. You're, you're wow. You're like really cool. Drop the mic. You're you're a Democrat. Um, uh, OK, so one thing to end. Um, it's on a much, much lighter note. But I just thought like people are always in need of a laugh. So. Um, I wrote this thing. I'm not going to read it on air, but you can go find it if you want to. 
uh, and it was a piece of satire that I wrote. And the title of the column, which was complete satire, was called, I was a professional anarchist paid by super rich liberal George Soros to bring Trump down. <laughs> and I made up a completely fictional person. This person does not exist. Yeah. But for the sake of satire, the person who was angry was an anarchist named Emiliano Goodman. And uh, he claimed that Soros was paying him to travel the country to protest the Trump campaign and spread chaos. And that was that was what was and there's more going on. And basically the way that I set up this piece of satire was that he was angry because he found out now that he wasn't going to get paid the tens of thousands of dollars that he was promised by uh, George Soros. And so, you know, I, I had him calling George Soros out and saying, fuck you and getting really angry with George Soros and um, insulting George and all kinds of stuff like that. But uh, <laughs> I just can't believe how stupid. Sorry. Okay. No, but it was very, it, it's very clear that it's um, not a real piece. But uh, here's the thing that's really fun. So I found online that uh, this place uh, called squawker.org actually grabbed this piece of satire <laughs> so and funny. Um, said the claim, the claim is that uh, George Soros is ready to throw $3 billion on the table to conduct a military coup against the U.S. president. <laughs> and uh, they start uh, with uh, some, they start with a Bloomberg piece. They start with some other things that are out there. And then they get to my piece of satire. And it says, this is my favorite part. One must question the credibility of this article when considering that the author does not have any other credits to his name. Emiliano Goodman appears exclusively on this column, but nowhere else on the website. Extensive fact-checking has yielded no further evidence. SGTReport.com's claims cannot be corroborated at this... Oh, they're referring to a different source. Anyways, um, <laughs> the ultimate decision, though, was that it's difficult to substantiate, but could it be that Soros and the rest of the Democratic Party are attempting a formal resistance against the newly elected president? Uh, no, the decision was not that, like... It's wrong. It's not factually true. It was just that they could not substantiate it at the time. <laughs> so anyways, if you I mean, not that I needed to like demonstrate to anybody that these conservative fact check sites are a complete joke, but no, it's uh, just they're so stupid. Like, I really am kind of stunned sometimes, but it is a new level. I mean, I've, I've seen people who are conservatives that run these fact checking operations. And you could say the same about liberal fact checking operations that skew towards ideology. You know, they're, they're reading stuff and they just want it. They want the facts to confirm what they believe. Media Matters does this. Mm -hmm. uh, but in this case, it's like to fall for a complete piece of satire. Which is really <laughs> funny because like, wow, you guys can't figure out that this is pro like, it's like, it's pretty, it's so obvious it's satire. Like, wow. <laughs> wow. I don't even know. I'm just like, I feel like the American education system is failing too many youths. I'll leave you, I'll leave you with a line. Um, I actually said, the, I actually wrote this. The only problem is Soros is a bitch ass dick stain. Oh, all right. Uh, that's uh, actually like a really great um, insult. Say, say it again. What is it? A bitch ass dick stain. A bitch ass dick stain. I'm going <laughs> to use that if I can remember it. A bitch <laughs> ass dick stain. And, All right. And, Got and it. So at some point, 
And I also used the word motherfucker. So at some point, they actually were reading this academically, I imagine. <laughs> or, you know, I, I just, again, I'm amazed that a website would treat this seriously. I mean, at some point, you would have to get to this language and go, oh, oh, wow. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Jesus, I, it's a God. Everyone, everyone's really stupid. laying it all out there. All right, everyone's well, stupid. this is the age of Trump. This it's is fake, what it's like now. Yeah, this fake news. Well, Kevin, you're basically pushing fake news. I mean, <laughs> inadvertently pushing fake news. Um, all right. Well, <laughs> thanks everyone for listening to our show. Yes, and we will be back next week. Uh, keep, uh, yeah, fighting the good fight, and don't be such a bitch ass dick stain. Exactly. That was the discussion portion for this week. If you have not listened to the interview, we interviewed Michael Lighty of National Nurses United. He's the policy director. He's been working on health care reform for over 25 years, and we spoke to him about what's going on right now with health care and the push for a national Medicare for all system. So you can find that posted separately. <laughs>